Gracious and holy God, we enter into your presence with great thanksgiving. May the meditations of our hearts and minds and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Amen. You know, I'm always amazed at stories about people who forgive in the face of unforgivable circumstances. I'm the one that's always asking, how does one find the strength that moves them beyond the injustices that leave them raw or broken or filled with anger and despair? I wonder how I might have acted if my life had been changed in the way that Mary Johnson's life was back in February of 1993. Mary and her only son, Lamont, lived in North Minneapolis, where she still lives today. It was on that cold winter's night when Mary got a call that no parent should ever get. It was on that night that her son had gone out to a party, and the person at the other end of the phone was explaining something that took her breath away. He said that at that party there was an altercation, a scuffle ensued, and a gunshot rang out, leaving her 20-year-old son dead. That minute turned into hours. Those hours into days and days into weeks and weeks into months as the disbelief turned into despair and then to anger and resentment and despise. A rage within her seemed to be only fed by the need to seek revenge. And for Mary, that revenge came in the form of the incarceration of the one who took her son's life. Oshea Israel was only 16 years old when he went to that party carrying a gun with him and that altercation broke out and he shot Lamont. He was arrested shortly after that and he was tried as an adult and he was convicted of his crime and sentenced to the highest penalty of the law, which was 25 years in prison. During this cold month in February, we have been looking at the basic characteristics of our Christian life. At the center of our Christian life is this understanding of forgiveness. It's a construct that we teach our children when things are done wrong to them, when someone wrongs them or trips them on the playground. We teach them how to forgive. It is the story that we tell year after year during Holy Week as we look at how Jesus was able to forgive Judas who betrayed him, Peter who denied him, the disciples who abandoned him, the thief on the cross who asked him, and the soldiers who executed him. Forgiveness is profound. It is powerful, and often it is elusive. But it is a deep, central characteristic of our Christian walk. It is fundamentally to who we are. But it is also a Jewish basic as well. And it is in true rabbinic form that Jesus challenges his disciples when they come and they join him on the hillside and he begins to teach them. And he teaches them how to move more deeply into this forgiveness that is central to their faith. 
I'm reading this morning from the Sermon on the Mount. It is in the fifth and sixth and seventh chapters of Matthew. I'll be reading from the fifth chapter, picking up at verse 21 and going through 26. Listen now for the word of God. Jesus says, You have heard that it is said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or a sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. May God add blessing to the reading of this holy word. Amen. Jesus says, you have heard that it was in ancient times. And then we moderns want to assume that what Jesus is saying, that we are somehow uh, in a position of moral behavior that is better than our Jewish brothers and sisters. And that's a problem for us. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, just moments before he says this, he says to them, look, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, he is saying he has come to bring a new understanding, a deeper understanding to what the listener already knows. And in doing so, Jesus employs this common rabbinic teaching method where the text is cited along with the traditional understanding of the text and then offers up a new interpretation. In other words, what Jesus is saying, that there is more. There is more that is required of us if we are truly to get to the depths of the understanding of what Jesus and what God is telling us in Scripture. He uses three examples to get to this. He starts with murder. He says, you have heard that you should not murder. And then he goes on to say, because you will be held liable to judgment. And then he expands this prohibition to include anger and verbal abuse, both insults and name-calling. Jesus also expands the punishment portion of these violations, saying that if you do this, you will go before the council, that is, the judge of the church. You may even be excommunicated or thrown out. And then he says, and if you go to name-calling, then you might find yourselves in the fire of hell. This Greek term is actually Gehana. And Gehana is a place that was south of Jerusalem, a place where the ancient people often sacrificed human babies to the pagan gods. And during the time of Jesus, it had become known as a place that that people might go after they die in order to atone for their sins. (coughs) It would be going too far for us to imagine that what Jesus is saying is that you can never be angry. 
because Jesus got angry. The emotion is not in and of itself that which is a problem, but it is what that anger brings out of us that becomes the problem. Unchecked anger in our lives can turn into unhealthy self-loathing or loathing for another person, which then can be acted upon not only physically, but also verbally. While we acknowledge that our verbal abuse is way less violent than murder, it is in this language that we find that we can dehumanize one another. And when we dehumanize one another time after time through the use of verbal abuse and through the use of name-calling, then we cease to see each other as a human. And that brings about mistreatment for one another. But Jesus continues to dig a little bit further. He moves from this theoretical to the very practical. He says you simply cannot go and worship God with any kind of integrity unless you are in right relationship with your neighbor, with your brother and your sister, with your mom and your dad, with, your, with the, the person that you work with. He is putting it this way. He says that it is up to you to go and make amends with anybody that you have wronged and with anybody that has wronged you. In fact, he says, it is a good and practical idea to work out these differences even before you get to court. Because in the day of Jesus, if you got to court and there was judgment passed, you were thrown into prison and you had no means to make amends. In our day and time, it means that when we take one another to court or take one another to task in a legal way, we often drive a wedge between our relationship in such a way that we can no longer reconcile with one another. So there's been times and circumstances in my life when I find Jesus' expectation in this particular teaching and other teachings of the Sermon on the Mount to be almost too difficult, too unreasonable to expect. After all, we are just human. We are imperfect, Jesus, I find myself saying. And this seems to require way too much of us imperfect humans. And then I thought about it. What would it really mean if each of us had to be completely in harmony with one another before we even came into this space to worship? We probably couldn't even hold Sunday worship sessions. And then I remembered God gives us this amazing ability to confess. We use it in our communion liturgy at the first of the month and when we stand and we confess our sins before God and one another. We give this opportunity to offer up to God and to one another that which causes us to be broken. There have been times... Sorry, I lost my place. I got so excited about that. So there's this bishop, Desmond Tutu. Many of you know him. He has spent his life studying the Sermon on the Mount, studying every word that Jesus says. And he says that this is not too hard for us. He says this is absolutely necessary for all reconciliation and all brokenness in our world. He says it this way, he says, you cannot possibly will your own emotions to change. You cannot will your anger to go away. You cannot will the resentment to go away. But what you can do is act. So he says this is how we act. We must agree to abandon the right 
to revenge and retaliation. It is only when we abandon that act of retaliation and revenge that we begin to open doors that offer opportunity to start new and begin the work of possibly restoring any relationship. That's pretty difficult, especially in isolation. We need the support of many people around us if we are even to expect that we could do this walk in any sort of way. We need our brothers and sisters around us to help us when we're hurt, when we're broken, when we're so filled with anger and suffering. This last week, as I was reading these stories one after another about this forgiveness, this amazing thing, uh, thing called forgiveness and how people are, uh, are truly amazed at doing that, I ran across, again, the Amish community story of 2006. We remember... It was in that community that uh, a young, mentally ill, 32-year-old man walked into one of their schools and opened fire, killing six of their children and injuring five others. He was killed as well. And soon after, when they were burying all the children and even burying the gunman, it was those same Amish fathers and mothers and leaders in the community that said, we must go to his family and we must tell them that we hold no harm against them, that we have already forgiven them. I know most of us were profoundly moved by this. We could not even imagine. And so sociologists began to study this. What is it about this community that enabled them to do that, especially so short after the, the event happened? And they came to the conclusion that it was not a rational decision-making that drove them over to the perpetrator's funeral but it was a simple, habitual behavior woven into the very fabric of their community, into the fabric of their heart, into the fabric of their faith. It was just what they did. Then they began to realize that one element that enables this Amish community to be able to do this is the community itself. They are never in it alone. They don't have to defend themselves individually. In fact, in their language, there is no word for retaliation. Instead, the community itself absorbs any adversity, any hatred, any loathing, any anger. They circle around each other and they hold each other up. They walk beside one another as they proclaim the merciful judgment of God. One of my uh, sermon preaching professors named Thomas Long says this about the judgment of God. He says that it is actually a beautiful and wonderful thing. It is God's repairing of a broken creation. Judgment is God's special scalpel, which is carefully used to remove all malignant tissue that threatens our life in order that we might breathe the air of forgiveness and compassion. It is simply the way God sets things right. I opened my sermon this morning with a story about Mary Johnson and how her life was changed forever. It was one day about a year after that all happened that Mary began to realize that the bullet that destroyed her son's life was no different than what she was allowing to destroy her own life, that resentment, that anger that was in her. 
Later she talked to a uh, reporter and she says, unforgiveness is like a cancer. It literally eats us from the inside out. So it wasn't long after um, O'Shea went to prison that Mary found herself visiting him. And as they sat down across from one another with the, the thick window between them and they picked up the phone, O'Shea looking down and Mary looking him in the face, she said, young man, you don't know me and I don't know you. So let's just start right now. And that was the beginning of a relationship. A relationship that had conversation after conversation, letter after letter, and confessions. And out of that relationship became something new. Something new was created out of something ugly that was before. And when O'Shea was released 17 years after he had been in prison, it was Mary who went to talk to her landlord to gain him housing. And he took up residence right next door to her. They share a porch. And they share life together. They share support and encouragement of one another. Today, they are close. They are as close as mother and son. And Mary sings the songs of her faith as she works out in her life. And O'Shea works in a recycling center during the day and takes classes to finish his education at night. And then he sings the songs of his faith that he learned from Mary at church and in the prisons. He does that to pay witness to the profound, powerful, and sometimes elusive, but always life-giving Christian gift of forgiveness. Mary shared these words of wisdom with that reporter that day. She says, for me, the forgiving was for me. It does not diminish what he has done. It did not even change what he did. But forgiveness is for me. It frees my soul from the darkness, and it gave me a tomorrow. Friends, Jesus says, be forgiving. It changes our relationship with one another. It changes our relationship with ourselves, and it changes our relationship with God. And if you need a partner to go with you in this journey towards forgiveness, look around you. This is the body of Christ, this community of faith that is here to uphold you and to lift you up and to walk beside you as you encounter that incredibly courageous journey towards forgiveness. Or give me a call. I'll be glad to walk alongside you. Lean on one another. Thanks be to God. Amen.